last week that I went over to McDowell County Jail. Those conversations are always awkward. Um, There's a measure of shame with the person on the other side of the glass. And then there is everything in me that wants this conversation to go well. That wants him to get and hear some truth. That wants this to be an eternal moment, perhaps, in the confines of cinder blocks and thick glass and old-style phones. He didn't know I was coming, so he was surprised to see me. We picked up the phone and listened to the message and did what you do to get through to the person on the other side of the glass, and the conversation ensued. He explained why he was there. Multiple drug charges landed him in jail. His desperate desire was to get out. That's what he wanted to do. I just want to be out of here, he said. We talked back and forth about different things. He reminded me of his stint of serving with Lunch Bunch. And then... I asked him a question. Have you considered getting counseling? His reply was, for what? I said, for, for drugs. He said, oh, I don't have a problem with drugs. I reminded him of what landed him in jail. It was drugs. He sat there gaunt, borderline emaciated, sunken eyes, orange jumpsuit, quivering as he held the phone. Most likely coming off of whatever got him in there and still didn't see that he had a problem with drugs. Sin is sin in a forensic or legal way with God. But there are some sin that is devastating in its impact And that's where we find ourselves in the genealogy today. Devastating sin. We discover some characteristics about it from King David's life. He has sent the army across the Jordan River to fight at this city called Rabbah. And at that city... The Ammonites live, and they're a threat, so he's got to equalize the threat. Some have mistakenly assumed through the years that if David had gone out to war with them, uh, then he would have been at the right place at the right time, and this wouldn't have happened. But kings going to war isn't wise now. It wasn't wise then. There's some prior conversation about David's stay back. He certainly was a warrior, but he didn't belong on the front lines. He belonged uh, in the king's palace. 
leading this nation, this budding young nation called Israel. But we discovered that devastating sin begins in a moment. The first characteristic of of devastating sin is that it begins in a moment. If you read it, it seems so simple, but it reads like this. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. Very few people get up one morning and say, today is the day I plan to set my life on a collision course. Very few. There are those people in the world and they have multiple levels of issues. But this was just a day. It happened. The story writer shares. Late one afternoon... When David arose from his couch. Why was he sleeping on the roof? It was the cool spot. No air conditioned homes. This is Middle Eastern climate. This is the cool spot. This is where you sleep. He gets up. He walks around. He looks down and he sees a woman bathing. Still, while that is definitely tempting, that's not sin. Temptation in and of itself isn't sin. Um, He saw her. If he walks away, we're good. But the very next words, and David sent and inquired. This is where sin begins. The inquiry. Who is this woman uh, bathing uh, down below, most likely in her courtyard, which again wasn't unusual. It's not like Bathsheba is down there trying to woo him. There's no uh, indoor plumbing, so she most likely is just bathing as most women did. Devastating sin begins in a moment. Don't know if you saw the news this week of the two teenagers arrested in Gatlinburg. For the fires. One of them, 14 years old, that now must deal with the reality that a fire he set took 14 lives and, and either destroyed or, or damaged 1,700 structures. I'm just assuming that 14 year old boy didn't anticipate that devastating sin begins in a moment at a point in time it starts devastating sin secondly continues step by step notice the verbs they give you insight into how this sin happened david saw david inquired david took and david lay with her These are sequential things in the sin of David. David saw, David inquired, David took, and David lay with her. James writing says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
That phrase is important. By his own desire. What does that mean? What tempts you may not necessarily be what tempts me. We have our own sin natures with our own desires that can crawl up in us, that live in us. And the older we get, they don't go away. You never outgrow the desire to sin. You never lose your sinful nature with which you are born. Uh, When you come to Christ, you get a new nature. And Galatians 5 says, a war breaks out, but the old nature is still as present as the new is. And some of you... It is the desire of the eyes. First John breaks this down into three areas. The pride of life and pride in possessions. For some of you, it's the desire of the eyes. You look and lust. It's sex. You desire who or what isn't yours. For, for others of you, it's desires of life. It's uh, power and position. You just can't get enough. And for others of you, it's us. It's pride in possessions. It's the car you drive or the clothes you wear or the house in which you live. They become defining things for you. James says each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. James paints a picture of desire uh, like conception. So prior to the conception of sin is a desire and a temptation. And when desire and temptation meet, a baby is born called sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, James says, brings forth death. Sin always leads to death, always. As a matter of fact, I brought my big, thick, uh, systematic theology text on the stage this morning. I'm afraid we have a tendency to over-psychologize people's problems when theology might give us a significant answer. Um, There are about six chapters on sin in this book. Uh, I turn to 28 called The Results of Sin. I'll just read you the list from the, uh, uh, the front page here of the chapter. The effects on the sinner. Enslavement. Flight from reality. Denial of sin, self-deceit, insensitivity, self-centeredness, and restlessness. If you've ever been deep in sin, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you've ever had a child who was deep in sin, your son or your daughter was a slave, ignored reality, denied the sin in which... They were entangled, deceived themselves. They were insensitive to you. They were self-centered, pursuing only what was good for them. And they were restless, never, ever satisfied. You don't need Dr. Phil for that. All of this comes from God's word. 
So when we discover who Bathsheba is, this becomes even more pronounced. Devastating sin continues step by step. Stephen Covey says, so a thought, reap an action, so an action, reap a habit, so a habit, reap a character, so a character, reap a destiny. That goes positive and negative. So David sins and inquires, who is this beautiful woman bathing? And the word comes back. And when the word came back, if there was anything that should have stopped him dead in his tracks, it was that. Who is this woman? Oh, she is the daughter of Eliam. Well, who is that? Eliam was one of David's premier warriors in his army. David would have known him personally. Eliam's father, go back and read another place, was David's personal confidant, his personal counselor to the king. Uriah the Hittite, listed elsewhere as one of the 30 valiant warriors in David's army. David would have known him personally too. The messenger comes back and says, is not this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam? Like, can't you see the look on his face? Daughter of Eliam? Implied granddaughter of your best friend? Wife of Uriah? One of your 30 valiant men? Her father? Her husband are fighting for the nation of Israel. How how dare you, David? How dare you had to be implied in this? How dare you? What does he, what does he do? He, He ignores all that. Devastating. Sin is underway. The object of David's lust was the object of her father's love. The object of David's lust was the object of her husband's love. You see, sin objectifies. It takes the face off of a person. It it takes the name away and, and, and we... Engaged namelessly in sin. Mike Henry, pastor in Raleigh, told me the story of driving down Interstate 40 there just outside of Greensboro. At the time, there was an adult store. There were billboards to advertise that store. And there was a scantily clad woman on the billboard. Mike had a deacon from the church with him, an older man in the car. Mike said, as they neared the place, the man got quiet. And he looked over at Mike and he said, do you see that woman? Mike said, yes. He said, that's my daughter. How many men stopped at that place? And forgot 
that woman dancing around that pole had a dad who grieved every time he passed her larger than life-size depiction on the billboard. Sin objectifies, doesn't it? It takes away names and faces. It was a one-night stand. You, uh, David sends Bathsheba home. She discovers she's pregnant, comes back, sends word back, tells him she's pregnant. When she does, David could have repented, but he didn't. What did he do? He calls for Uriah. So now he's putting his country at jeopardy. This is one of the 30. Don't miss that. He calls him in about 40 miles from Jerusalem over to Rabbah across the Jordan River. So he's got to cross the Jordan or go south somewhere around the Dead Sea. Get over back to Jerusalem, the capital city. Give me a report. There's really nothing major to report. Uriah reports he must have been staggered that David would call him on such a long journey by, by, uh, by foot or by animal. And uh, David says, you've been fighting. Go into your wife. Uriah is so faithful as a soldier, he won't have anything of the sort. He refuses. He sleeps on the stoop of his house. David gets word of that, brings it back in, pulls a trick out of the Ammonites themselves, their playbook. Get the soldier drunk. If you can't beat him sober, you can beat him drunk. David gets Uriah drunk, sends him back. Uriah still refuses It must have been an unbearably long night in King David's life because now the cover-up is about to get dirty. And so what does he do? He writes a letter which turns out to be Uriah's own death warrant. He seals it with the king's ring, hands it to Uriah and says, Will you take this to Joab, uh, your commander on the front lines? Now, don't miss the report that Uriah brought back about the city of Rabbah was that it was besieged, which means all you do is wait. You wait. They get hungry enough. They'll come out. They'll surrender. But in David's orders, he says, attack the city. Put Uriah out front. Joab must have thought, why? There have been numerous victories up until now. We know how to fight this war. But he does what David says anyway. He sends Uriah out front. And as the scripture records, messenger comes back from Joab to King David. We attacked. Several died. Uriah, your servant, also is dead. Several widows mourned that day in Jerusalem when the messenger showed up and said, Today, your father's, your, your children's father died. 
in battle. Unthinkable, isn't it? It leads us to the third characteristic, devastating sin, self-deceives. What did David do? He resorts to philosophy. He says, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. I tell you, I have met more philosophers in my office in the aftermath of unrepentant sin. Oh, but if you only knew what kind of husband I had. Oh, oh, but he's not a spiritual leader. Oh, but if you saw how she treated me, if you heard how she talked to me. People who've never taken a philosophy course all of a sudden become masters at the art of rationalization. They're able to rationalize anything. This is what David does. He quotes a philosopher. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Or the sword devours one and then another is what he says as he sits smugly on his throne. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10 says, I the Lord do. David may have been too able to philosophize about this, but but the very next verse says that Bathsheba cried. She cried. She wasn't in love with David. The story doesn't give that. As best we can tell, this was a one-night stand. He was the object of her lust. One night was all it took. She cried. Mourning lasted 30 days. The way it's worded, it appears on day 31 when official mourning was over because Bathsheba would have changed her clothes to black garb that uh, David came on day 31. It appears, it just says when the mourning was over and took her to be his wife. But that leads us to the fourth characteristic because the very last verse of the chapter, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Devastating sin displeases God. We hear that word and uh, displeases sounds, you know, like your kid not taking out the garbage. No, the word means to quiver or tremble. What David did caused God to shake on his throne. I shared with the men that I was with this past weekend. I struggle in that I so theologize God, I lose sight of him as a person, right? He has a personality. As I was preparing this week, I made a note in my preparation. God, I never want to cause you to tremble because of something I do. You and I can cause God to tremble on his throne. 
As a matter of fact, the other time this occurs is back in Genesis 38, interestingly enough, where Tamar shows up. And Onan, who is supposed to impregnate her and refuses to, it says it causes God to, it displeases God. God killed him. And then Nathan confronts David. This prophet steps in out of the blue. And he's got the unlikely job of speaking to a strong man about his sin. So what do you do? It's an old ploy used in many kingdoms. You tell a story, bring the person in, and once you've done that, boom. So Nathan steps forward and says to the king, there was a man, a rich man who had many, many lambs, many sheep. And there was a poor man who only had one, and he loved it like a child. And he held it and nursed it and, and loved on that little ewe lamb. But the rich man learned that company was coming. Folks were coming in for dinner. And he thought, I must sacrifice a lamb and, or kill a lamb and, and serve them food. And instead of getting one of his many, he went to the guy who only had one and took the only lamb he had. And killed it and fed them with his only, the only lamb of this only guy. And David just rises in indignation. Who is this man? He ought to be brought in and judgment ought to happen to him fourfold. And Nathan says these words, you are the man. You've caused God to tremble, David. Why did this displease God so much? If you read 7 and 8 of chapter 12, you discover that God had provided David with position. I anointed you king. Protection. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Possessions. I gave your master's house to you. Every good thing we have comes from God. Amen, church? Everything you have, your health, your finances, your bank account, uh, your house in which you live, the food you're going to eat in just a few minutes, all of it is a gift from God. Every single thing we have is a gift from him. And when we cause the giver of all good things to tremble on his throne because of our defiance and rebellion and abuse of that relationship... Judgment is coming, and it came. Nathan, why have you despised the word of the Lord? means to trample underfoot. What? The Ten Commandments. Uh, David lied. He stole. He committed adultery. He committed murder. You have struck down. Uh, Nathan says, you have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And then he says, the sword will never depart from your door. And sure enough, David had four sons who died prematurely. One unnamed by Bathsheba. Then there was Amnon and there was Absalom. And Adonijah. Let me push rewind for you. Like I do in class. What did David say that he wanted to happen to the guy who took the one lamb? May it be done to him. How much? 
fourfold. Oh. He, he pronounced his own judgment. I love David's response now. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. All right, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, when you sinned, you would take a lamb and sacrifice it and offer sacrifice for your sin. But something happens here. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And before David can offer a lamb, what does God's spokesman say? The Lord has what? Put away your sin. What? David can barely get the words out of his mouth. The God who trembled when David sinned and added sin to sin is the God of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord is passing before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You might put it in there parenthetically, unrepentant. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Oh, I'm just so convinced that at any point, at any point, if David said, I've sinned against the Lord, that at that point, God would have stepped in immediately. Nehemiah 7, Nehemiah is preaching. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God. Look at this phrase. Ready to what, church? Ready to what, church? Ready to forgive. It's as if this God who is trembling in anger is leaning over the balcony of heaven saying... Repent. I'm ready to forgive you. Ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Could I say something to you, church? God is more forgiving than we are. God is more gracious than you and I ever thought about being. He is more forgiving than you and I ever thought about being. Why? He knows it all. He knows it all. He he knows the good deed done for a bad reason. He knows bad motives, not only bad things. He sees the heart and he's ready to forgive David's own words, Psalm 86. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's 
ready to forgive. Say, how do we know? Christmas. Christmas. The reason O Holy Night is such a powerful song is it speaks of the silence broken by God. 400 years of it. Between the old and the new, God's glory departed from the temple in Ezekiel. And the next time the word glory is mentioned is on the hillside when the angels show up and sing of the glory of God. Breaking through. Why? Because God is ready to what church? Oh gosh, do you believe that? God is ready to what? I, I dare say that that the young man sitting across from me in that window, uh, in that jail, he's done nothing near as bad as King David. He's broken laws. He needs justice and he wants mercy. I hope to go see him again this week. He's a God who's ready to forgive. And I'm guessing that whatever you walked in here with, I hope if you're running free, that it doesn't include murder, treason, sacrificing the national security of your own nation for your cover-up plan. God took that away. So here's how we close, Steve, if you'll join us on stage. David wrote a song, a penitential psalm about this. Psalm 51. Would you close your eyes, bow your heads? And for some of you, today is the day you say, I'm done. It's over. This psalm will get you started. As Steve reads. Psalm 51, and it reads like this. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth of the inner being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, 
and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore in me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good. To Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is a blessed word from our Lord.